You're in the water loop. This is Waterloop episode number 122, Going Green in New Orleans. Managing water in New Orleans is a challenge because of the city's unique hydrology, system of pipes and pumps, and intense rainfall events. Instead of relying on the traditional gray infrastructure, the city is also embracing the use of green infrastructure to contain water, reduce flooding, transform public spaces, and beautify neighborhoods. The approach is discussed in this episode with Megan Williams, Stormwater Program Manager for the City of New Orleans Department of Public Works. Megan also shares her own journey from being motivated to help find solutions after Hurricane Katrina devastated the city as a teenager to becoming an engineer in college and now an advocate for green approaches. She talks about the Pontilly Neighborhood Stormwater Network Project that reduces flood risk and beautifies green spaces in the Pontchartrain Park and Gentilly Woods neighborhoods. Waterloop is a nonprofit media outlet, and before starting the podcast, I want to acknowledge the funders and sponsors that make this platform possible. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from the Walton Family Foundation and Springpoint Partners. I also want to talk for a few minutes about our sponsors, Hydroloop and High Sierra Showerheads, two companies that are advancing water sustainability. After sharing some more about them, we'll start the conversation. Thanks for listening. Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Hydroloop. It's time for bold leadership when it comes to advancing water sustainability. Let's look at the example set by Sydney, Australia. The city saw that it was time to adapt, and it cleared the way for residential gray water recycling, allowing homeowners to clean and reuse water in their homes. Enter the perfect solution, Hydroloop. It's a water recycling system that takes the water from showers and washing machines and cleans it so it can be used again for toilets, washing machines, garden irrigation, and more. The Hydroloop technology can make a massive difference for water sustainability in countries around the world, including in the United States. Sydney is showing what is possible by empowering residents to recycle water. With Hydroloop, you can use water twice. Learn more at Hydroloop.com. Hi, this is Travis with Waterloop. Right now, more than half of the United States is in some form of drought. It's not just out west. It's up in the Pacific Northwest, it's in the upper Midwest, there's drought in New England, and there's even dry conditions here in North Carolina where I live. Almost 80 million people live in some part of the country where there's drought. During times like this, every drop really does count. Showerheads are an easy way to conserve water in our homes. That's why I use High Sierra Showerheads at my house, and I'm really proud that they're a sponsor of this podcast. They carry the EPA WaterSense label for water efficiency and use 40% less water than conventional low-flow showerheads. They use just a gallon and a half a minute. So what does that come out to? For every minute you're in the shower, you're saving one gallon of water. You take a 10-minute shower, that's 10 gallons of water you have not used because you have high Sierra shower heads. Over the course of a month, that's 300 gallons of water that have been conserved. You're going to also save on your water bill and your energy bill. 
you can get 20% off using promo code LOOP20 at HighSierraShowerHeads.com. You're in the water loop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Excited to be with Megan Williams. She is the Stormwater Program Manager, Department of Public Works, City of New Orleans. Megan, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. This is exciting. I'll just say it's officially my first in-person podcast, so it'll, it'll look different to people, but we're <laughs> back out on the road in the world again, which is good stuff. Well, I'm glad you chose here to, to be your first stop. <laughs> yeah, like I said, it's one of my favorite places, period, but you guys have so many water issues, right? Like the history is amazing. It goes yeah. back centuries yeah. at the forefront of dealing with water in a different way. And so that's oh, why yeah. I wanted to come here. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a task. It's a daily task uh, <laughs> to deal with water. I mean, it's, there's no shortage of water issue here, water issues here. Um, whether it's coastal or stormwater management or uh, even our potable water systems, um, there's a wealth of issues here. <laughs> yeah, why is the why is the city the situation so unique? You know, mm -hmm. there's no other city in the U.S. Mm -hmm. really that has like the the structural water issues. Mm -hmm. I guess from like where the location is yeah. and all that. I know? mean, it's it's a multitude of, of reasons. I mean, one the the soils we sit on are, are very soft, uh, don't really offer a whole lot of opportunities for infiltration. We have uh, a huge subsidence issue. Uh, our, we're a coastal city, uh, a coastal state, really. So two-thirds of our state is surrounded by, uh, by the coast. So, you know, you look at any coastal city right now and you see just massive changes in the, the topography of it. Uh, New Orleans in particular, we sit at the bottom of a bowl. Uh, we are surrounded by levees on all sides, so we, we pump our water out, so we're sinking, and then we have the subsidence issue that's just compounded by having to pump all of our water out. Um, you know, it's the climate change piece of it, right? So how much water we're getting, heat island effect, uh, how much rainfall we have, uh, it, it just it makes for a, a very messy situation for us to be in. <laughs> That's like kind of, I guess, the geographic hydrologic profile. What's mm -hmm. what's like the city's relationship with water? Mm -hmm. You know, you're you're from yeah. here. You know, this is your city. yeah. I mean, I was I was born and raised here, so our our history is a long-standing one. Uh, it's, it's tumultuous at best. You know, we dating back to the the '60s and Hurricane Betsy came. You know, my parents were were kids at that time. Um, to Hurricane Katrina when I was 16. Um, you know, it, it, it has kind of started as the, the hurricane threat and it's transformed in the last probably eight to 10 years from away from just hurricanes to this, these annual rains that we're getting, uh, not even annual. I mean, we're getting several of them over the course of a year that just, I mean, we just get slammed with, with rain in a really, really short period of time. So it's, it's an ever changing relationship with water from our coastal cities that are literally just eroding away in front of our uh, front of our eyes. You go down to Grand Isle and, and some of these other places, you can see the the shoreline just washing away. To us in New Orleans, where we have excess water, mm. you know, pretty much at all times, that we have to find something to do with. And so you mentioned these heavy rains. A lot of this is like that climate change thing mm -hmm. that's happening, right? Where you're getting these mm -hmm. intense heavy rainfall is just dumping. I mean, you yeah. guys have always had a lot of rain being right on the, the Gulf Coast mm -hmm. and everything, but it's gotten just more dramatic, huh? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've 
we've always been, you know, right at the center of, of the, the threat for a hurricane, right? So we get these rainy seasons that last for really long periods of time. Uh, but right now what we're seeing is the average annual rainfall is about the same, but when we get that is very different. So we get these really intense bursts of rain and, you know, we're getting, you know, it's July 19th right now. Um, we're 19 days into this month and we're at a plus six differential from our norm um, of how much average rainfall we get in a month. So when those totals are, or when those, those differentials are so extreme sometimes, uh, you know, we're, we're just, we're just waiting for for that next big storm. Uh, I think last year we had two or three of them where we're getting we're getting so much rain that we end up having two to three feet of water in our streets at any given time. It happened just Friday. Uh, I think Friday we got close to two inches in a half hour. You know, and for it doesn't matter the state of the art system that you would have, um, it's not going to keep up with that much rainfall yeah. at all. You mentioned Katrina. Now, mm -hmm. From what I understand, that was kind of a formative moment for you, obviously, mm -hmm. for this for the people here in this place. Mm -hmm. But from a career perspective, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was I was 16 when Katrina hit in 2005. I was a junior in high school, um, and where I grew up is sort of we're adjacent to New Orleans, so it's not New Orleans proper, right outside the city. But my dad's family is uh, was and still uh, is right in the middle of the city. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of his family and friends grew up right in the city, and uh, at the time, I was, in my mind, I was very much like, oh, I want to go into architecture, I want to build things, whatever. Um, Thanksgiving Day of 2005, when we finally made it back after evacuating, um, my dad drove us around the city, and he let my brother and I see firsthand the things that we saw on the news. Um, so, you know, we're driving down streets, and we're seeing the water line at, you know, the roof of some houses, and... Uh, you know, you see everything from the the Coast Guard and the Army Corps from where they're rescuing people. And, you know, you see the marks on houses. And, you know, as a, as a kid, it, you really don't have words for that until you see it. And you just kind of like, it's such a hard pill to swallow at that point. And different seeing it on the news versus like yeah. in person. Right? Yeah, you see it on the news and it's like, God, that, it looks like a movie. Yeah. You know, and then you come home and it's like, Oh, this is home now. And, you know, for me at that moment, I was like, life does not exist the way that I was used to. Um, and I, I didn't know exactly what it would mean at the time, but I remember thinking like, hey, I want to be a part of this. Like, I, I got to step up some kind of way. I want to, I remember telling my mom like, oh, I want to, I want to be a part of this. I want to fix the city some kind of way. No idea what that meant. Um, even through college, I had no idea what that meant. Ended up switching my career to uh, civil engineering uh, at the University of New Orleans. And once I graduated and came to Public Works about five years ago, um, that was the first time I got a taste for green infrastructure. And it was like all the pieces just kind of like clicked together. It was a, a very like, it was a very subtle moment, but I remember just thinking like, Oh yeah, this is this, this is what I'm supposed to do, and this is the path. So let's yeah. talk about mm -hmm. that. It's the idea that instead of the traditional historic way, mm -hmm. maybe that water has been managed in New Orleans, you still have to have some of that, right? Yeah. The pumping and the levees and all mm -hmm. that. But now there's this approach of like, hold on, we have to 
use green infrastructure yeah. and retain the water mm -hmm. and manage it in a different way. Could you mm -hmm. talk about that transition, that mindset? Yeah, so for New Orleans, uh, again, it's very unique for us. It's sort of our identity as being unique and you know, getting away from the norm like everyone else. Uh, we have to have a green and gray approach. So like I said before, we pump everything out. We pump from, uh, we pump away from the Mississippi River. So from all the way across town, furthest point of town, we pump all the way out to like Pontchartrain. So it's a long way to pump, which means that water is just accumulating in the system uh, over time. So what we have to do is be able to really just hold it for just a moment, even just at the surface, uh, just be able to hold some water and then let that peak of the storm pass. So we have to have this combined approach and uh, New Orleans is, is also a very densely populated area. Um, we get a lot of runoff, we're super impervious. We don't have the luxury of having a whole lot of green spaces. Yeah. So for the spaces that we do have, we have to be really creative in how we manage that water. So for us, it's, it's less about infiltration like in some other places. Um, and it's really more just about that, that really brief moment of retention. Because if we can hold it for just a little bit of time and let our pump system and give any sort of relief to our pump systems, um, that's a win for us. Mm -hmm. And then eventually we can put it back into the system at a really slow rate um, so that we're not overwhelming it. Uh, you know, there's, there's always going to be the chance for us that we uh, overexhaust those systems um, as part of the climate change piece. But for what we can do for our regular everyday storms is to really just give a moment of relief to our gray system. Um, there's some combination of the two that has to happen. We still have to upgrade drainage pipes as, as needed. Um, it can't be one all one way or all the other. Uh, it's got to be this really hybrid approach because we still have to pump that water out. Okay. Green infrastructure, so it gives you those water management benefits, but mm -hmm. I'd love to hear about the other benefits. Mm -hmm. It's one of the reasons I'm a big fan because it mm -hmm. brings so many other good things to the yeah. area. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, a lot of what we do is also beautification projects. Um, so our projects tend to be like right smack dab in the middle of neighborhoods. So we have this opportunity to really change the layout of a neighborhood and, and provide some uh, you know, plants and trees and uh, recreation spaces and hopefully have these, these systems that really uh, sort of double dip in what they're supposed to do. So they can manage water, but they can also, you know, say it's a park. We can also set up a playground on top of some tanks. Um, so, you know, for us, it's really envisioning the different ways that we can make a usable space for residents on days that it's dry and then also have this like really cool management feature for the, these really big storms that we're getting. Um, it also gives us an opportunity for education, for public education. So uh, we have this living with water mindset, but to do that, you got to put water in, in front of people's face. <laughs> right. um, we live with water in a very dangerous right, way right now. And this green infrastructure will allow us to uh, educate our residents and, and our kids and our, our school systems in the climate change piece and like why are we holding water here or you know why is that a pond you know what's what's that going to do and the question always comes up well I don't want mosquitoes and hey let me actually teach you how we can avoid that by still doing this really cool thing within your neighborhood uh, we can reduce the heat island effect by putting in trees um, 
we have these really cool ecosystems and, and wildlife that can come in. And, you know, in one of our detention ponds, we always see ducks yeah. all the time. So we're creating a habitat for uh, these di for different uh, wildlife and, and ecosystems to exist in. So it's it's got so many different benefits and the financial benefit of not having people lose homes and cars and, and all these other things for us as a city, um, you know, a city government, that's a, that's a huge piece for us as well. Well, you were saying when we were out at the Pontilly project, which we'll talk about in a second, yeah, mm -hmm. you were saying it's not just having water in the streets, right? Mm -hmm. There's an actual threat to property from oh, how yeah. much water is gets built up, cars getting swept away and we everything. Get, we get people's cars are flooding all the time. Uh, you know, every now and then we'll get rains that are hard enough to, to raise the water level to get in people's homes, depending mm -hmm. on where they sit. Uh, not just that, but people can't get to and from work when our roads are flooded the way that they are. So there's a financial loss, there's an income loss uh, for a lot of our residents when that's the case. So for us, we have a duty to make sure that those roads are clear, to do what we can to get that water off the roadway or, or not even put it in the roadway to begin with. Um, and when you have those really hard impervious areas, it's got nothing to do but just move to the, the point of least contention, right? So it wants to get into the drainage system, but the drainage system is completely overloaded at this point. So for us, now we say, okay, well, hey, we can put in a detention pond over here, or we can go put in some subsurface tanks or a bioswale, anything to just give that like brief moment of relief to the system. Yeah. You, you mentioned a couple things, the idea that, that residents see these projects. And I'm mm -hmm. just curious about like the role of communication then mm -hmm. in, in this whole transformation that's going mm -hmm. on. The relationship with the residents is a, it's a transforming one. Um, so typically what we've done in the past is, you know, we just let them know that a project's coming mm. uh, and that construction's gonna start. And what we've seen with these particular projects is like, we gotta bring our residents to the table at the very beginning. Cause at the end of the day, these are the people who live with it every single day. These are the people who are gonna have it in their front yard, in their backyard, uh, where their kids play. Uh, so we have to bring our residents to the table. So. Thankfully for one of our really large federal grants, there's a community engagement piece built into it. There's a requirement there. Um, and we've really pushed some of our engineers um, and architects that are designing this to be creative in that process and let the residents have some say so. And okay, what do you even wanna see for the stormwater management feature? Or, you know, we sit behind a computer a lot of the time and run numbers and calculations and stuff like that. And uh, we don't think about the functionality of it in terms of a resident has to park there or we're taking away a parking spot to put uh, a curb bump out or something like that. So we've asked our engineers to really bring them to the table throughout the design life of a project and let the residents have some say so. Um, during construction, there's always, you know, the, the inconvenience of having our construction crews there and stuff like that. But uh, thankfully for the project you mentioned, Pontilly, uh, our residents were phenomenal. They were really the driving force for this project even existing. Um, but it's, a, it's also a behavior change that we're asking of the residents too and saying, listen, we need to change the layout of this um, and this living with water thing. And you're gonna see water in the street sometimes. You're gonna see water here built up here, but that's what it's supposed to do. So it's a behavior change that we're asking, but it's our duty to educate our residents on what that even means. And what's the general feedback you're getting from the community about mm -hmm. these projects? Now that there's so many of them going mm -hmm. in in different spots, what's kind of the- I think the community has really seen the need for it. Um, I think the, the community knows that pumping all of our water out is not the answer. And like I said, the education piece there is, is 
widespread. Mm. You know, there's so many opportunities on what we can teach. We can teach groundwater and soils and subsidence and all these other things. Um, but the residents have seen that like, okay, this, this particular project actually works, right? This can keep water off of my, my property in particular. So thankfully for the most part, residents have been uh, very receptive to the idea. Um, mm. They've been huge proponents for it. You can look on most of our social media when we do have a green infrastructure project come out and say, oh, hey, I want one of these in my neighborhood, or, um, you know, this is what we need to do. We need to, we can't pump all the water in, so we can teach about climate change and, and things like that. So it's a very delicate process to balance the education and why we're doing these things and, and living with water, you know, for the various generations that we see in our communities. Um, some people don't want to live with water. Some people just say, get the water out however you have to, put it underground, whatever. I don't want it in my front yard. Mm. Um, so it's a balancing act between the two. Sure. I know that there's some organizations around the city that mm -hmm. are working with residents and, and other businesses maybe to get mm -hmm. green infrastructure on private property, mm -hmm. right? Like you guys are working in the public, public mm -hmm. space. Um, how do those two things complement each other? Uh, yeah, we have a lot of nonprofits that are, that are doing projects on people's uh, private property. Uh, we have, I think, a I think it's a HUD grant for our climate adaptation program that allows our New Orleans Redevelop Authority to hire engineers to go and help in certain districts to uh, bring some of those water management pieces to private property. And for us as a city, uh, city government, you know, every drop that's stored on a resident's property is one less drop that we have to pump <laughs> out. So I, I know and I have heard that people say, oh, well, it's not going to make a big deal. The answer is not one rain balance. Like, no, it's not. But when you get 50,000 of those spread out here and there, then you start to see a difference. And it's not all, always, you know, I know for us as engineers, we tend to think of it on like a watershed um, basis, right? So we think about the drainage area and that's not always where we're going to see the improvement. Sometimes it means like that person needs to be able to get in and out of their home without it flooding. And sometimes that means, you know, different versions of it, uh, okay. whether it's a biosoil in front of your front yard or you're managing all the water that falls on your property within your front yard or in your backyard or somewhere on your property like that makes a difference in the long term when we get it's not just this one guy on his own block it's you know 15 people here and 20 people there and 50 people over there like that's when you really start to see the difference so it's it's an ongoing process so the two have to complement each other they have to work uh in tangent with each other yeah, and and I imagine people don't want just standard standing water and flooded water mm -hmm. on their sidewalk and driveway right. and property. So it's mm -hmm. like a way they can open their own property up. Pontilly project, mm -hmm. um, you know, I know we got to visit. That was awesome. Could you mm -hmm. just kind of give a summary of that one? Because mm -hmm. that's one of the biggest things I think you mm -hmm. all have done so far. Yeah, so we've got two really large projects that have happened, and Pontilly is one of them. Uh, Higgin Lafitte is the other project, and. Pontilly is really unique in that it spreads across two neighborhoods. Um, and what I was saying out in the field is that we had, I want to say, 32 vacant residential lots that were donated back to the city um, through an agreement with one of our partners to transform those lots from just vacant, you know, blighted properties to stormwater management features. So it's a stormwater lot. It's a, it's an, it's been excavated. You can hold. It basically becomes a detention pond in a really hard rain. Um, Throughout the, the six or seven different interventions we have, we can store about between eight and nine million gallons of water, mm. um, which 
is an astronomical number for us. Um, we have really large uh, bioswales and very deep bioswales. Um, it's one of the few areas where we had some green space that we could sort of repurpose. Um, we had a lot of neutral grounds or, or medians, I guess is what the rest of the world will call them. <laughs> what you, what um, did you call it? We call them neutral grounds. Neutral grounds, yeah. okay. Um, which dates way back to uh, long before I was ever in existence. Um, but we were able to sort of repurpose them where typically we have very large subsurface box culverts that run underneath them. This is one of the few places we didn't have that so we could excavate and create uh, a dry pond when it's days like today when it hasn't rained yet and when it does rain, which I'm sure it will later today, um, <laughs> it, it serves as a, det a detention pond. So you can actually accumulate a, a pretty significant amount of water through each of it. We have permeable pavement. We created these pedestrian alleyways that have the permeable pavers inside of them so it keeps them walkable you can traverse them with a car or with a bike uh, or mm -hmm. by walking and you're not having to trudge through um, these really overgrown they were completely overgrown completely inaccessible before we went out there um, we've got rain gardens like I said we've got a really large bioswale that you'll see out there so this particular project we were able to implement uh, almost every version, aside from like subsurface tanks, almost every version that is possible here and really let it serve as like a lessons learned as well because it's the first of its magnitude trying all these different things that tie in together to make this uh, one cohesive project. Mm. Uh, last question I want to ask then is just about where things go from here. Like mm -hmm. what, are the, what are the plans to keep going mm -hmm. down this path? I think one of our biggest plans has to be uh, letting this be the driving force for projects as we develop them. Uh, where do we still see a need for drainage improvements and how do we create that hybrid approach like I talked about? So typically for us as public works, it's been, okay, that road is bad, let's go do that. Oh yeah, let's add dry drainage to that afterwards. And I think we have to reverse that process and say, where do we still have these gaps in our drainage and where are we still seeing these really vulnerable areas? And then how can we complement that with green infrastructure? Where can we reimagine uh, how our spaces are used? How do we transform these neighborhoods that are very, very uh, impervious and really hot? How can we change that to become a stormwater management feature? Um, and then for us, it's also making sure that it's widespread that it's, it's equitable, right? So making sure that all of our vulnerable communities have access to this just as much as, you know, the highest paying tax residents, right? Mm -hmm. So making sure that the footprint covers the entire city will be phenomenal for us because any relief that we can get to our drainage system is a relief in the long run and that's gonna do us a lot of good. So um, getting buy-in from the public and making sure that we're educating along the way um, is a big force for this and I, I think it's just constantly reinforcing that this is a need it's not just it's not just the beautification side of it there's a huge stormwater management need here as well I mean every time I see news articles I'm always seeing stuff happening in New Orleans with mm -hmm. with this transformation so mm -hmm. that's why I wanted to come down and talk to you I think it's exciting yeah. I mean I'm cheering from you guys from afar it's awesome <laughs> well, stuff. we appreciate that so. this is a it's just the beginning for us uh, we got a long way to go uh, we have an incredible opportunity for our engineers right mm -hmm. to really be challenged to think outside the box and and to say that this is not just 
for one type of engineer, all of our civil engineers especially, really have to start thinking, how can I include this in my project? How can I, how can I redo my drainage here and be creative and, and store some water as, instead of just let me put the biggest pipe in the ground that I possibly can to yeah. serve this purpose. So it's, I mean, it's multi-layered in as many ways that you can think from the government side to the resident side to our professional engineering side and the services that they and our landscape architects offer as well. Um, and then creating this really cohesive bond between engineers and architects in a way that we haven't really had to do um, in previous years, you know, now we get the opportunity to work with landscape architects and bring them to the table and all of us sit at the table at the same time and come up with a solution that best serves each neighborhood. Because what's, again, unique about us is not every neighborhood is created even close to being the same and every neighborhood has different needs. So for me, I need to make sure that we are meeting the needs of that particular neighborhood with that project and not just replicating the one thing we did on the other side of town. Yeah, Awesome. Well, Megan, thank you for the time and, yeah. and uh, sharing all this that's going on. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. Waterloop is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish choice for conserving water, energy, and money while enjoying an invigorating shower. Use promo code LOOP20 for 20% off at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Hydroloop, the innovative water recycling system for homes and businesses. Use water twice with Hydroloop. Learn more at hydroloop.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop.